a biblical view of diversity, a biblical view of diversity. How many of you know that God is a diverse God? He's one, but there are many dimensions to him. Amen? And if you're a Bible-believing Christian, then it's important to be able to manage and leverage diversity. Many people see diversity as just something to manage, but I believe it's something you can actually leverage off. Diversity is not a bad thing. Amen. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, the Bible says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That word manifold is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word polypoikilos, and it specifically speaks of different colors. Different colors. That's what it actually speaks of literally. So when you talk about Joseph's technicolored dream coat, it was his coat with many colors. Amen. And I believe that God has got many dimensions to him and many dimensions specifically of his wisdom. And so we want to go into this because if we are Christians, then we must be people who are able to embrace diversity. Amen. But you see what is happening today is there's the way the world is teaching it. And the world will tell you, you must have tolerance. We hear that a lot, don't we? And for the world, what tolerance really means and looks like is that if you don't agree with something, you must just keep quiet and act like you agree with it and don't challenge the status quo. Amen. But I don't know about you, when I see scripture, the scripture tells me that we must love people. When I go home, I don't want my family to tolerate me. I'm not looking for tolerance from my family members. I'm looking for love. Say to the person next to you, I need love. How many of you remember that rap from way, way back by LL Cool J? Come on, let's take you back. Beam, beam, beam. Beam, 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 beam. Anyway, when I'm alone in my room, I hear my conscience call. Anyway, um, I'm not here as a rapper, I'm here as a pastor. Amen. <laughs> yeah, anyway, one of the greatest raps of all time, I think. But anyway, the point I want to make is that there's diversity in God, there's diversity in creation. Just think about it. This is a beautiful country, isn't it? It's a beautiful country. You can go to the Berg. You can go to Drakensberg and see this rugged terrain. You can go to, the, to KZN and see the rolling hills of Natal. Then you can go to the ocean. And the Atlantic Ocean is not the same as the Indian Ocean. Amen. It's different. Then you can go to other places and you see these dainty little flowers. Then you go to Pumalanga, hazy view, and you see the scenery there. Then you go to... Um, uh, other parts of Mpumalanga, I guess, and you go into Nelspruit and uh, the Kruger National Park, you see savanna terrain, etc. It all looks different, but it's beautiful in its own way. Isn't that wonderful? And don't you see it even with people? We are beautiful in our own way. There's some people who are very dark skinned, uh, like dark chocolate, and they're beautiful. There are others who are lighter skinned and paler, and they're beautiful in that way. There's some who are larger than others. Can I hear an amen? Glory, hallelujah, from all the larger people. And then there's some who are very petite. Amen. And you see the beauty, you can recognize it. Think of all the beautiful people you know. There's some that are large in terms of frame, and there's some that are small. There are others that are, um, what, uh, <laughs> I have to be careful what terms I use. There are others that are dark, some that are light. But God is, God is so diverse even in creation. And he looks and he says it was good. 
when he created Adam and Eve, he looks and he says it was good. When he created Eve, he says it was very good. Come on, all the men in the house. Amen. Glory. Hallelujah. Praise God. All right. So, so creation is so diverse. So why is this issue of diversity so important? It's important that we study diversity from a biblical perspective because there's a way that the world is teaching it that is wrong. And we should be at the forefront of teaching on diversity. Amen. All right. Um, when I, look, when I look biblically, I see a number of interesting things about diversity, and we're going to go into that today. And then next week, we're going to start talking about stereotypes, stereotypes, okay, and prejudice. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about overcoming racism. Amen. Yeah, because there are a lot of people today, you see them on TV barking, screaming, saying things about racism, yet they are racist themselves. They yeah. are? And it's us as biblical Christians who should be at the forefront of teaching people about embracing everyone. And it's going to be a very powerful, powerful talk. Now, when you don't manage diversity, you become irrelevant. If we're, if we're not good with people who are not like us, we become irrelevant. That's one of the consequences. Amen. Number two, you become an exclusive club that people can't relate to. If we're not diverse as a church and we cater for only one type of person, people will come through and they'll be like, oh, this isn't for me. How many of you, that's not our portion? Amen? Amen. All right. Um, you also, in business, end up losing sales. Amen. <laughs> in business, you end up losing sales, don't you? You end up losing sales because you are clueless about what's going on with people who are not like you. And that's why organizations that have diverse teams end up being very powerful because people feel like, hey, you know what? I can relate. When you don't embrace diversity, you make mistakes when it comes to advertising. And then you have an advert that you have to take off or pull out in terms of, um, you, I think you know some of the recent things that have happened. Because obviously it was a blind spot, because you were looking at it from a very ethnocentric perspective, right? You see, when we don't manage diversity, we end up with ethnocentricity. What is ethnocentricity? Where you can only see the world from one perspective. You remember there was a little um, British boy in England, and he meets up with a Korean gentleman. And this guy was speaking broken English and basically says, you know what, can you show me the directions to such and such a place? And this little British boy was trying to help him. And he just says, sir, just speak. When I open my mouth, English comes out. Just speak, sir. Can you see what is happening? From his perspective, speaking equals English. Right? That is a form of Eurocentricity. Right? But we see a lot of Afrocentricism here in this nation, don't we? when we only view things from one perspective and we're not able to say, but wait a minute, these guys who grew up like this, how do they view the world? Are you hearing me this morning? God wants us to be able to manage diversity and not look at things just from one perspective. Okay, when you don't manage diversity, you're limited in the number of people you can influence. You're limited. God has called us to be leaders. One of the mandates on this church is to release leaders, amen? To release leaders into society. And what the problem is, is if you're only able to lead people who are like you, you limit your influence as a leader. Not so. All right? 
The, some of the latest leadership research today is actually showing that the greatest leaders today have mastered the art of leading beyond the old boys club. What is the old boys club? People who went to similar school as you. People who look like you, people who talk like you, people who like the same jokes, have the same sense of humor as you. If I only relate to that group of people, I'm limiting myself as a leader. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are leaders here? I'm not talking about in a leadership position, but you're leaders as a person. You influence people. Excuse me, now more hands are going up. There should be more hands. If you're a mom, you're a leader, you're always influencing your kids. Amen? Come on, there should be more hands, right? We're called to be leaders. We're called to influence. Now, how many of you who are men are good with women? I'm talking about leadership here. I'm not talking about other stuff. Amen. How many of you are good with women? Come on. Okay, Jimmy's hand is up. I'm seeing some hands up, a few hands up. All right? Because the dynamics between men and women are different in the workplace, for example. Those of you who are a bit older, how many of you are good with the millennials? How many of you are good with youngsters? How many of you are good with the youth? You get them. I know, Kwaile, you're good with the youth. You get them. Okay? Elaine, you're good with the youth. Right? That's so important. Otherwise, we limit ourselves. Are you hearing me this morning? How many of you who are younger are good with old people? I'm seeing hands going up quickly. It's important to understand this. We need to be able to relate multi-generationally. Amen. All right? A lot of the people I coach in the workplace today, they struggle with this. They're saying, Paul, you know what? I'm fine with the guys my age, but eh, some of the old guys who've been here for 40 years, eh, trying to correct them, trying to relate to them. I don't know what to do. You hear complaints like that. I don't know when this lady who's old enough to be my mother, when she offers me tea, this will be a young black woman talking about an older black woman from a similar tribal group. But this young black woman is a manager. And she says, I feel so awkward. This is my mom. This, this is like my mom. I even call her something like that. And now she's making tea for me. There's an awkwardness that's there. But it's important that we're able to put on this hat when we're at home and a different hat when we're at work. Amen. Amen. Managing diversity is critical. Critical. How many of you are good with people from other ethnic groups? And there's a reason why I'm saying ethnic groups and not racial groups for a reason, because I'm challenging certain things about race. Come on, raise your hands, raise your hands. You're good with other ethnic groups. How many of you, keep your hand up, keep your hand up. I don't want to embarrass anyone. Keep your hand up if in the last year, in, since the beginning of the year, you've invited someone from a different ethnic group to your house for tea. I'm so proud of you. I'm seeing many hands. I'm seeing many hands. Put, keep your hand up if you've invited someone who's got a different skin color to your house for tea. <laughs> this year <laughs> praise God some of you live with those very people <laughs> for some of us it's a permanent situation <laughs> praise God alright guys that's brilliant that's brilliant alright because a lot of people think that they're really good with diversity because when they're forced by the pastor to, sh to greet the other person they say yeah we greet in church and we sing kumbaya right <laughs> together but the test is, who do you have home for tea? Amen? The test is, who, who, where do you send your child when they go for sleepovers at other friends? Or is it a mindset of, hey, not these people, we don't trust them. We see it sometimes, you see it sometimes still in South Africa where you wonder, how come this person is going to this child's party but not my party? And so on. What's the difference? But these guys are better friends than with these guys. We, we see those dynamics. And then you start wondering, huh? 
and you kind of do a process of elimination and you start thinking, okay, maybe, but let's suspend judgment because we're Christians. Amen. <laughs> All right. It's important. How many of you are good at relating with people from a different academic background? Okay, many times we think we're good at that, but I speak to people and you hear some people saying, yeah, Paul, you know, because it's easier with the other CAs, yeah, because the other CAs, they get me, yeah, because those other guys, or you have some people, I've had some people, yeah, Paul, you know, you're dealing with non-degreed people, you know, so do you know what I mean, Paul? And they'll be trying to rope you into their narrative. You know when people try and rope you into their narrative? Do you know what I mean, Paul? And I'm just like straight-faced. I'm thinking if you're going to be a great leader, you must be able to deal with people who are more educated than you and less educated than you. And your degree of education isn't always a measure of your degree of cleverness and smartness. There are a lot of people who haven't had the opportunity to uh, study in terms of tertiary education and advance the way you have, but they're smarter than you. Amen? And they're making more money than you. Come on, let's be honest now. So let's not be so proud of like, yeah, I've got 20 degrees. Hey, look at me. The letters after my degree, uh, after my name, you know, my degrees are, are longer than my name itself. You know those people, when, right? So let's be able to relate with people at all these different levels. And you know, this is the real issue in South Africa because our education system here, it's very narrow, isn't it? The mindset is if I study accounting, that's all I think of, accounting, accounting, accounting. And then I tell everyone, I'm a CA, I'm a CA, the first time I greet them, which is great because it's a good qualification. But you know that some of the best entrepreneurs in this country are accountants, but they didn't define themselves as accountants. They said, I'm a business person. I happen to have a background in accounting. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Sometimes in this nation, we define ourselves too much by our profession and too little by our purpose. Amen? We define ourselves too much by our profession and too little by our purpose. What's your purpose beyond your profession? You know that in places like America, sometimes I'll speak to someone who's an engineer perhaps from the States, and they talk to me and I think, is this person studies psychology or something? Because the education system, there's the literal, liberal arts approach, isn't it? Where you start off broad and then you specialize afterwards. Do you know that in Australia, they do double degrees. Someone from Australia can come and say, I, I did a BCom in pharmacy. And that's often what people need because that's what's happening in the real world. A lot of the people I coach in, in the pharmaceutical world, you'll hear them saying, yeah, Paul, I did a BSc in microbiology, but now I'm doing my MBA because that's what they need at work. Are you hearing me this morning? And for some of you, and I'm now speaking prophetically because for some of you, you have limited yourself and been too focused and too linear in your area of education. And if you start broadening things a bit saying, but you know what, it's not rocket science. Let me also master this. Let me also master that. It just makes you more effective as a leader. So there's diversity when it comes to people, but there's also diversity when it comes to our training. Are you understanding me this morning? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Amen. All right. So that's very, very important. Now, it's also an issue for us because our children, the next generation, they learn through observation. How many of you know that? So they're always observing us. And a lot of the fears, a lot of the prejudices that people are building up today, it's learned behavior, isn't it? Little kids have no issues when it comes to diversity or someone being a bit different and so on to them, right? But then we're the ones who are afraid of the difference and what we do. You'll always avoid that which you fear. So we distance ourselves from those people because we don't really understand them, right? 
And our kids today are asking questions and there's nothing wrong with the questions that they're asking. Some of the questions that some of my, uh, that my kids, sounding like there are many, that some of my kids, that my kids have asked me, they've, they said, how come the teaching assistants at school are all people of color? They didn't use the word people of color, they used the word they use, right? But how come? How come it's like the teachers are white and then the assistants are all brownish? <laughs> and our children see it. And you know that as they grow up observing these things, they start thinking, okay, is that what society is like? When we're driving down the N14, they are, Daddy, how come it's only brown people that live in those shacks? Daddy, how come it's only brown people that use taxis? I'm sure some of you have had those questions where your kids are asking. And now here's the thing, it's important for us to be able to frame their worlds because the response is now very important. It's important for us to speak to them in a way that shows them that life is not fixed. That there are consequences sometimes to how we are, that we become a certain way. But also if you go overseas, then you expose them. You show them movies where they see a lot of poor white people, right? Whether it's in Serbia or Estonia or any war-torn country. Amen? You also show them that, hey, wait a minute, this also looks like this. You take them to places where they get used to having people who are not people of color being their waitresses and waiters or driving buses. And then they're like, oh. Now the thing is, the problem is a lot of South Africans haven't traveled. So they haven't seen that. So in their minds, they start thinking, okay, this is what black people do. These are the jobs black people have. And that's what they grow up expecting. Are you hearing me? All right. Remember, people are not affected by their experiences. We are affected and we're damaged by the stories we tell ourselves of our experiences. It's how we frame our world that affects us. And as parents, when we're dealing with the next generation, we have an opportunity to reframe their worlds. Isn't that powerful? We've got that opportunity and we need to be doing it. Otherwise, we find that stereotypes and prejudice and racial dynamics pass on to the next generation. Now, here's the interesting thing about God. The great paradox of life is that God calls us to be one and to be united, yet makes us so different. He says to a husband and wife, you guys are now one flesh. You're one flesh, but you're so different in so many ways. And he's saying, have this unity in the diversity. Isn't that wonderful? And we see that a worship team works really well, not when everyone is the same. But you've got one person playing piano, you've got another person playing the drums, another person playing the guitar, You've got one person singing tenor or two people singing tenor, another one baritone, another one an alto, another one soprano, another one hitting the descants, another one is first tenor, another one second tenor. Amen? Amen. Just trying to show you guys that I'm clued up about these things. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. All right? So you've got these differences and yet there's one sound that comes. The bands that are not great is when someone wants to overshadow everyone else and doesn't want their voice to blend in with everyone else, isn't it? I'm sure those of you who've been in choirs before, sometimes you have to deal with those people. But there's unity in the diversity, and it's beautiful. That's why we preach and we talk about boundaries in marriage. Because the mistake that a lot of us make is we want our spouse to be like us in every way. To like the same movies, to dress the same style. I don't know how that works, because it's a guy and a girl, so how do they dress like you? Allow people to express their diversity in the way that God has wired them and celebrate that. Do you know what that reinforces? Self-acceptance. 
the other person then feels like, oh, so in order to be accepted and loved, I don't have to be like you. Now, we're the same when it comes to shared values, amen, and standards around various things. But in terms of style and uniqueness, it's wonderful just being different. That's how God made us. My preaching style isn't the same as my wife's. Mine is not better. Hers is beautiful in how God has made her. Amen? I think mine is okay in how God has made me, and that's wonderful. So let's examine diversity in the Bible. You want to do that? We want to go and look at the Word of God and see where diversity manifests itself. The first thing, point number one, is that the churches were different. When you, you know, everyone talks about the early church, the New Testament church. When you're talking about the New Testament church, you're not talking about just one church in one city. There's the church in Jerusalem. Amen. There's the church at Antioch. There's the church in Corinth. There's the church in Ephesus. Right? They're the Galatian churches. So there were different churches, and we learn different things from each of those churches. I want to just contrast uh, very quickly for you the church at Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. For example, the church in Jerusalem had an inward focus, didn't it? All right? If you look at Acts chapter 2, they were very strong when it comes to fellowship and their dedication to the apostles' doctrine. They were very focused on that. Yet you see the church at Antioch was very missional and mission-minded, right? It was a sending church. A lot of the people who left the church in Jerusalem, they left because of persecution. You guys understand the history, right? The history. In a, by AD 70, remember there was Nero and there was the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed, right? And it was only in about AD 135, there was the new city built up and there was a new church built up. And that church in Jerusalem was not the same as the church in Jerusalem in terms of the old Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Okay. And before AD 70, a whole lot of people had already dispersed because there was persecution from way back. It didn't just start when Jerusalem was destroyed from even before that. And people scattered and so on. And that's how the sending and the mission-sided aspect of the church in Jerusalem got going. But we found that if you look at the church at Antioch, it was very intentional. Remember, that's where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from in Acts 13, right? They're sent out from the church at Antioch. And we see that churches are different this way. You might go to a church down the road and it's very warm, very friendly, and it's a wonderful community. And people experience healing and restoration. Then you go to another church and it's all about the nations and we're going to reach the nations. And we're going to send out evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, and so on. There's nothing wrong with either. They just have different emphasis. And it's important for us to embrace that diversity. Amen. Amen. It's important for us to, to embrace that diversity. Not every church is going to have a Christian school that it starts up. But some churches have that vision. Not every church is going to be extremely strong in worship and cut CDs and that kind of thing. So some of you might have been from a church like that and then you assume like, oh, because I came from a church like that, then we must also do that. We'll do our CD soon. Hallelujah. Glory. We'll do it. But it might not be the main emphasis of what we're about as a church. Are you hearing me this morning? Right? Churches are different and they have different emphases. If you look at the church in Jerusalem, they had daily meetings. That was one of the emphases. Right? The church at Antioch was very prophetic. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, it says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And I think a lot of those prophets stayed there. They then stayed on in Antioch because you see them featuring also in Acts 13. Okay. In Jerusalem, they had temple services and then also the small group set up. Okay. So they met in the temple. 
right? There was a strong Jewish orientation or Jewish traditions in the Jerusalem church, right? You had, they were pretty much all Jews. You had the guys who were originally Jews, then you had the proselytes that they'd been converted to Judaism. So there was a strong sense of we are Jews. Overused, that strength of, the, of Judaism could also become a liability because some of them became quite legalistic, right? Whereas you found that there was a lot of the other influence in terms of ethnic, ethnic groups that the church at Antioch experienced. And today you have churches like that. There are a lot of churches, they grow very quickly, partly because they're homogenous. It's easier to grow a church when it's just one culture in the church. How many of you know that? All right. Um, there's some churches like that. If you look at Paul Yongi Cho's church, it's mostly Korean, right? Right? It's mostly Korean in, in uh, South Korea, right? But you look at a whole lot of other churches and they're very, very diverse. Joel Osteen and the guys, diverse church in the United States, which is quite a unique thing. All right? Um, you see that the church at Antioch was a sending church. Acts chapter 13, verse 3 to 4 says, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Right? I'm just trying to highlight to you some of the differences we see in the different churches in the New Testament and their differences. There's diversity in the body of Christ today. And instead of looking down on it, saying, oh, they don't do that. Oh, they don't have a men's ministry, and so on. Ask God, what have we been called to? And let's be good at a few things. Amen. Let's be good at a few things. Number two, the disciples were different. The disciples were different. Isn't it amazing when Jesus chose his disciples, he didn't choose people who were exactly the same. I know that a lot of them were fishermen in terms of what their trade and their skill was, but Jesus had been a carpenter. So he didn't go and just choose a whole lot of carpenters. And the mistake a lot of leaders make, one of the biggest leadership mistakes is hiring people who are like you. I'm not talking about in terms of values and passion. I'm just talking about in terms of skill set. It's important to be able to hire people and to work with people and to mobilize a team that has got people who will give you a different perspective. Amen. Let me just highlight a few things. And guys, you can get the notes from the website. Okay, just get into that habit of downloading the notes from the website. By tomorrow morning, they're there. And you can literally download them, right? Um, you look at someone like John. John. It says he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Interesting thing is John was the one who wrote that. Okay. But he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? He believed his own press about that, right? And, and, and sometimes he would be lying on Jesus' chest. So he was quite an affectionate sort of person. When you look at someone like Peter, Peter was quite impulsive, wasn't he? Peter would just literally chop off um, the, the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus had to heal it. Peter would be like, come on, Jesus, why are you doing that? Ah, no, this cross thing. Ah. And then Jesus says, oh, get behind me, Satan, right? And yet he's the guy who ended up leading the church afterwards. But he was different. They were not the same. Then you had this analytical doubting Thomas. I don't like calling him doubting Thomas. Like, I think he had so many other strengths, okay? But we label him based on his weakness. Imagine people gave you a nickname based on your weakness, right? And you had him and he's like, no, until I see for myself, Lord. How many of you know that even when you're married, you can be different in that way, right? I remember when we sold our house in four ways. I remember when the guy said, cool, it's happening. I was happy about it. I remember it was three months down the line when everything went through and so on, right? And the deal was signed, everything the bank had approved. I remember my wife saying, 
I'm really happy it's happened. I remember thinking to myself, I experienced this emotion three months ago. But for her, she has to see it. There it is. How many of you know that we balance each other that way? Because I, when certain things happen in my life, I want to announce to everyone, like, it's happened because the person said so. And sometimes my wife sort of has to pull the reins and say, my love, you know what? Just wait until everything is signed before you tell the whole world. <laughs> How many of you know that I've learned a few things as a result of that? But it's also great being in my space and experiencing the joy there and then. Because sometimes if you wait until people have signed, and often they do end up signing, but you might only feel happy three months down the line. Can you, can you hear what I'm saying? All right? And so we see some of these things. There's Judas. He was a bit deceitful. Uh, Jesus, speaking of Nathaniel, what did he say about him? He says, this is the true Israelite. There's no guile in him. In other words, this person was just honest. He says it like it is. He was candid. Okay, where you say what you mean and you mean what you say. There's the other guy called Jude. Okay, also popularly known as Tedious. He was more of a nationalist guy. He wanted Jesus to be known, made known to the nation, but not as a suffering savior. He wanted Jesus to be made known as a revolutionary leader. Can you see the differences that were there, the passion that was there? All right. Um, some of them were not married. Most of them were not married. They were young men who were unmarried. But Philip was. Peter was. We know Peter was because the Bible speaks of his mother-in-law. Right. Uh, the Bible speaks of Philip's children, etc. But isn't it interesting that Jesus had this diverse group and he led it? How good are you with diversity? Think about it. You see, a lot of times as leaders, we want to be accepted by people. So we end up gravitating towards the people who we think will accept us. And that's often people who are like us. Be very careful if you've got a root of rejection in your life, you'll limit your influence. Because you'll only gravitate towards people who you think will like you. And you miss out on a whole lot of people who are celebrating you behind the scenes. Amen? Number three, we saw that there was diversity within the early church. Just look at Acts chapter 13. Look at the church in Antioch. Okay? Look at the church in Antioch. I'm going to read Acts chapter 13 from 1 through to about 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So they weren't just evangelists. They weren't just pastors. One of the mistakes we make, those who use titles, they just call everyone pastor. And then there's no diversity in understanding the different ministry gifts. Because you have evangelists, you have teachers, you have prophets, you have apostles. Amen? It says that the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger. Don't, don't, don't say something else there. Simeon called Niger. Now what is interesting is that literally is the Latin. It comes from a Latin just speaking of dark skin. So maybe it was a, from a family of dark skinned people. All right. Or maybe it looked like some of us here. Right. But Simeon called Niger. And then there was Lucius of Cyrene. Now some of you might not know, but Cyrene is in North Africa. Right. It's a part. It's in Libya, modern day Libya today. It's close to a particular city in Libya. Right? It was a Greek colony there. So here's the church in Antioch, and it's got people who come from a Jewish background, people from a Greek background. There's this guy, um, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. So this guy had lived in a palace. He'd been brought up under a king. Then you've got another guy who's from North Africa. Can you see what's happening? The team from Antioch was a diverse team. And it was in that context that one of the greatest apostles was sent out, Paul and Barnabas. And then it says, and then there was Saul, and we know his history, right? So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Isn't that beautiful? The church was diverse. Some of you, if you don't have this in your DNA, you'll be the kind of person who will say, I will choose my, my church based on the songs they sing in praise and worship. How many of you know that that's an immature way of choosing a church? It's immature. I know I like my vernac, so there must be at least, at least two thirds of the songs must be vernac. Then I feel I've connected with Jesus. <laughs> now we, we have a nice mixture and I hope you appreciate the mixture here because it's intentional. But I'm telling you something, the church looks a certain way. And one of the things is we want the church to be diverse. Because when you come to church, it's not just about you connecting with Jesus. It's about us worshiping together congregationally. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay, and we need to be mature about it. By the way, Hillsong, Hillsong has just come out with um, CDs in Afrikaans. I don't know if you guys know, in Afrikaans, uh, in Kosa, and in Zulu. Hey, a CD in all the languages. Go and, go and get a copy. Amen. They'll pay me later for the marketing. Number four, diversity in the Godhead. The Lord is one, right? But there's the diversity in the oneness. There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My wife spoke quite a bit um, earlier on about the function of the Holy Spirit, right? Isn't it amazing how you can build a house and you have a contractor, you have an architect, and you also have the carpenter who does the, you know, or the bricklayer who does it, but the house comes out. And it's interesting because in the Godhead, it's very difficult to explain the Trinity, but in the Godhead, they have different functions, don't they? They have different functions. Think about what happened in creation. It's almost like, if you look at creation, it's almost like God was the strategist, right? The father planned the creation. And if you look at my notes, you can actually see the verses. He planned the creation. The word, or Jesus was the word, executed the father's plan and the Holy Spirit completed it. You see it in the new creation. The Bible says no one comes to the father except the father draws them or the spirit draws them. So we're going to the father, but the spirit draws us to the father. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever, hey? In the unbeliever because the person is not yet saved, all right? But we respond to the word who's Christ. Isn't that wonderful, all right? Um, you'll notice, for example, the father spoke the word, in creation in Genesis, and it says the spirit was brooding over the surface of the deep. So the spirit was involved in the completion of the work of the, of the work of creation. Isn't that powerful? Right? So there's unity in that diversity. Number six and number five. There's diversity in the animal kingdom. There's diversity in the animal kingdom. In Genesis 1, verse 24 to 26, it says, Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. After their kind. Were they all the same? No, after their kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind. And the cattle after their kind. And everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God saw that it was good that we don't just have one type of dog. That we don't just have um, wild animals and then tame ones uh, that are domesticated. That we don't just have fish, but we also have frogs. I know some of you don't like frogs, but God created them. Amen. <laughs> All right. 
My kids asked me the other day, Dad, what would you do if you were stuck in a, they said something like this, I'm paraphrasing, but if you're stuck like in a tank for a long time, for many hours, would you rather have worms in there with you or frogs? I said, I would rather have worms because the worms are just like worms, you know, but frogs, you know, <laughs> oh. when they open that eye, it's like, oh, there's suddenly another one. Anyway, God created all the animals. Now, what is interesting is it's it. He says he created them after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw it was good. So God created. Okay, we're not from some primordial soup. Okay. Um, and he saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look like the writer of Genesis liked the word creeping. Okay? And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You know what I find interesting? He created all the different animals after their own kind, the different species. But with man, it's singular. He created man. And the only difference was he created man, male and female. It doesn't say after this kind, after the European kind, after the, the African kind, after the Negroid kind. You know when people divide human beings into species, like we're animals. You know when people divide people into species, the different racial stock. You know, there's uh, Australianoid or something like that. There's Oriental, you know, or Mongoloid, they call. Then there's also, um, there's Negroid. And then there's Caucasian, like we're different species. There's only one race, and that's the human race. And I'm going to go deep into that. Right? You know that anthropologists have even studied this, and they've seen that we all come. Everyone comes originally from one woman. Amen? Have you read a book, and I'm not endorsing every aspect of it and so on, but there's a book called The Sons of Eva, or The Daughters of Eve. The Daughters of Eve. And that actually gave evidence for Adam and Eve. Because they did a study of people from different European countries and they traced and they saw that through DNA testing, these people all come, came from seven women. And then afterwards, those seven women all come from the one woman who's Eve. Isn't that powerful? So, so people who think, ah, oh, no, those people from over there, they're so different. They're so, so, so different. We all had one ancestor at the end of the day, Adam. So when one group thinks it's better than the other and another group thinks it's better than the other, there's a problem there. And I'm going to go deep into understanding prejudice and uh, overcoming racism and we'll unpack that a bit. But the Bible says we're all from one blood. That God created everyone from one blood. Amen. All right. But what I find interesting is there's this diversity in the animal kingdom. Right. Number six. There's diversity of function and gifting in the body. We're not all gifted the same, are we? We're gifted differently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read from verse 12 through to 27. It says, there's one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit. And so we were all formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. There's the same Holy Spirit, Right? So the body is not made up of just one part. It has many parts. Suppose the foot says, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. So there's a problem with an inferiority complex. 
Sometimes we point fingers at those, at those people who think they're superior, which is wrong. But we should also point fingers to those people who think they're inferior, because that's also wrong. Amen? It's important that we agree with the truth. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? I love these analogies. <laughs> Imagine like you're just one big ear. You just wax. One big waxy ear with ear hair coming out of your ear. God has placed each part of the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The pastor cannot say to a new believer who's just joined the church, we don't need you. You know, sometimes we get arrogant as leaders. You know, when leaders use the term, they say, um, yeah, I'm just getting these people to do it. And when they do it, they can do it almost as good as me. So I'm fine. No, get people who can do it better than you. Amen. Because you're not the best at everything. You are the verse 27. I'm jumping to verse 27. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. So you must know what part are you? What part are you? If you're a foot, stop trying to be an eye. Just enjoy the diversity. And if you're a foot, celebrate the fact that there's an eye. That there's an eye in your body. Because if there's no eye, the foot won't know where to go. It will just go aimlessly like a headless chicken. Amen? Number seven, there's diversity of personality. There's diversity of personality. I'll probably do a whole message just on this subject. It's important to understand, often when I teach using the insights colors, you've got your fiery reds. That's your let's do it now person. It has to happen like now. Then you've got your sunshine yellows. Let's do it together, everyone. Yay! You pitch up at their house. You think it'll be an intimate time. You and your wife, him and his wife. The whole neighborhood is there. It's like, where have all these people come from? Who else are you going to invite? Right? Then you've got your earth greens. And your earth greens... They're interesting people because they're like, let's do it nicely. Whatever we do, let's do it nicely. Let's make sure we're all friends. No fighting, right? No conflict. And if you notice in team settings, if you speak to a fire red and you say, hey, what's your team like? Oh, it's really pumping, hey? Everyone just speaks their mind. We just all just air our viewpoints and we just tell it like it is. And they're excited about that. Same team, same time. You ask an earth green. So what's your team like? Everyone is always fighting. No one really listens to each other and so on. Same situation, different perspective. Then you've got your cool blues. Let's do it correctly. Everything according to the rules. But pastor, you promised by this date, it must be done like this. So people are different and we have to adapt to them differently. Amen. How do you adapt to your fiery reds? Be brief, be bright and be gone. You go to a fiery reds office. Don't start saying, yeah, my grandmother's kitten died two weeks ago. Yeah, it was actually a Siamese cat trying to connect with them. They're like, get to the point. Get to the point. So, so, so what was the point? Right? Sometimes when I'm having chats with my wife, right, or if we're having an argument about something, she says, my love, you know what? Sometimes when we're arguing about something, you talk in circles and I feel like I'm swimming in words. Can you just tell me? What's the point? Can you just tell me the main, the, the point? I'm like, it's not actually about the point. Everything is the point. <laughs> Okay, so people are different this way. So when I speak to my wife, I have to learn to speak in bullet point. Boom, boom, boom. Then she sees. Okay. But people are different that way. And they each have different strengths, don't they? Because the strength a fiery red brings to the team is focus. They bring focus to a team. Guys, let's stay focused. Let's do it. No dilly-dallying. 
The strength that Sunshine Yellow brings to a team is flow. That's adaptability and flexibility. They're easygoing people that way. The strength uh, an Earth Green brings to a team is that sense of cohesion. Is everyone okay? Have we checked up on, on Cindy? Is she fine? Is, is Juan treating her well? Right? They do that. They want there to be peace. They want there to be harmony. And the strength of a cool blue in a team setting is measure. These are your high attention to detail people and they bring measure to a team. So you have the sunshine yellow saying, ah, 2018 is the year, guys. Hey, we're doing really well. And the cool blues will say, let's see the results. Let's see the stats. <laughs> okay? And we need that, don't we? And we need to celebrate all those differences. Right? Fiery Red goes to the mall. They pitch up at the mall. You know, Fiery Reds, for them, they go to the mall, not for the shopping experience. They won't be like, I love shopping with Malapo. Shopping with Malapo is so nice. No, they go to the mall to get stuff. They already know I must go entrance four. I must go when it's not busy. I mustn't go on a Saturday or public holiday. And I'm going to that shop and I'll get my thing and I will go. I will leave. Right? So the Fiery Red is there. And it's Saturday, he gets there, gets his thing. Now it's lunchtime. And there's a group of friends, and maybe his wife is earth green, and she's got a group of earth green friends. That's the opposite type. And now it's lunchtime. And the fiery red says to these guys, so guys, what do you want for lunch? Is it Indian, Chinese, or Portuguese? Now one of the biggest stressors for a fiery red is indecisiveness, when people don't make quick decisions. And one of the quickest, biggest stressors for earth greens is being put under pressure to make quick decisions. <laughs> and then they dig their heels in. So the fire red goes and says like, so guys, do you want Indian, Chinese, Portuguese? What is it going to be today? And these earth greens are like, I'm easy, I'm flexy. What do you want? <laughs> and they're saying this. You know why they're saying this? Because they want harmony. They don't want to fight. They might really prefer Chinese to Portuguese, but they'd rather have the peace. I'm easy, I'm flexy. So they make decisions by consensus. That's why decision making for them is often longer. And the fire red is getting irritated and is like, just choose, guys. Indian, Chinese, Portuguese. I'm easy, I'm flexy. What do you want? And the fire red then takes over and they're like, guys, today it's Portuguese. And they go. And then everyone is following behind this fire red. This has happened to me. This has happened to me with the fire red, some friends of ours, when we had a real life. And then everyone is following behind. And what tends to happen is people then behind that person's back, like, she's such a bully. Have you seen that? You know? She just takes over. All right? And isn't it interesting? So you see, Peter is a certain way. Peter probably had red and yellow in him. Do you notice that? Right? But you notice some other differences. Paul was probably a red-blue. Very demanding, but also comply, guys. Ah, the circumcision. That, no, Peter, the way you're addressing this, no, this is wrong, guys. No, these guys, no, the doctrine is wrong. Right? He was like that. People like Moses. Moses probably had some green, probably some green-yellow, but maybe, maybe even some green-blue, because to, to write out those Ten Commandments, you know, you have to be accurate and so on, right? And, all, and writing the book of Numbers, I mean, yo, I think you need some blue for that, right? And Abram was probably, he probably had green and yellow, a mixture of that. Remember with Lot, he didn't want to fight Lot. It's like, okay, you choose, where do you want to go? Do you know that some of that is personality? Some of it is faith and obedience to God, but some of it is personality. Because the other people will be like, this is not fair, Lot. You've only just joined me, and I've just rescued you from Sodom, and now you want the better land. Uh-uh. Injustice. But he didn't do that. Okay? So we are different. 
Some of you, in your marriages, you've got certain differences, and I'll cover this some other time, and I'll go into detail. Some of you are justice-orientated. Others of you are mercy-orientated. Some of you are rigid. Some of you are flexible. You know what's powerful in a marriage relationship? It's where we start celebrating the differences. Where you start saying, you know what, my wife can be a bit rigid about certain things, but in the quality that comes out of it, at least it's good. It might irritate me sometimes, but I see the benefits of it. Amen? Oh, my husband is a bit flexible. This is really great for me. My wife likes the fact that I'm very flexible. Right? It's really great because it gives a leeway in many ways in her life. But sometimes flexibility in itself isn't always a strength. In terms of leadership, it's a strength. It's actually been found that a lot of the, the, the big mistakes that a lot of leaders make, the ones that don't last, number one, failure to build strong relationships. And guess what one of the other ones is? Too rigid. Too rigid as a person. All right? Some people are thinking orientated. Others are feeling orientated. Someone wants to borrow money from you and, and your wife. Those of you who are feeling orientated will be like, let's just help them out. It will come back sometime. Remember what Pastor Trace taught us about tithes and giving. It will come back. Right? The thinkers will be like, when are they going to pay us back? What are they going to use it for? Can we trust them? What's their record like? Okay? Can you see that when we celebrate these two things, it becomes powerful and we become a powerful force? Okay? Some of you are includers. You like including everyone in everything you do. Makes you a good team player. But then you may be in a marriage with someone who's an excluder. You know that sometimes in marriage it's good to be exclusive? Otherwise you always have people with you. Do you know that one of the big marriage destroyers today is when you can't do anything by yourself, just you and your wife, the kids always have to be included, relatives, everyone, friends. You never go on holiday where it's just the two of you. That's a marriage destroyer. So sometimes you have to also exclude. Exclusion isn't always a bad thing. Amen. Okay? Um, when I talk to you more in depth about different personalities and diversity in personality, we'll go into some of these differences in a deeper way. Number eight, there was diversity in the tribes and the cultures. We saw in scripture, there was diversity in the different tribes and cultures. And I want to just highlight to you some of them. For example, with Judah, with the tribe of Judah, these, were, these guys were leaders. They were strong leaders. Okay, they had a leadership mantle. This was the tribe of kings, right? And was very preeminent. And Judah prevailed, the Bible says, over his brothers. Okay, and they had certain territory and so on. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. David was, Mary, Solomon, Caleb, right? Then you had Reuben, right? And um, it was said that he was uncontrolled as water, right? You had Simeon, right? And with his brother Levi, remember, they slaughtered the men of an entire city just to avenge their sister, okay? Um, so you had a number of differences. Levi, Levi was the tribe of priests, all right? Um, and I can go on list by list by list by list. You had Gad. Little is said of Gad in scripture, um, but there were some famous ones like Reuben settled, just like, like Reuben, they settled at the east of the Jordan. You had Asher, okay? And this is a tribe that would enjoy rich foods. But if you go through this list, and I'm not going to go through it, you can look in scripture, you'll see some of the differences, and they actually each had different strengths. And today we have what we call redemptive gifts or redemptive purpose of different tribes. Amen. If you look, for example, at the Zulu people, what are they known for? That's a, it's a warrior kingdom, isn't it? 
But look at a lot of Zulu intercessors and you'll notice that when it comes to spiritual warfare, they can also have that warrior thing. The gift has been redeemed. They're not necessarily going and fighting everyone, but you'll find that sometimes they will rise up when they feel there's injustice. You'll find that sometimes when it comes to prayer, they're like, we need to get rid of the devil in this situation. Let's do it. So it's important that if you're a Zulu person to recognize that, you know what, I've got my individual calling, but tribally, there's a redemptive purpose, right, of my tribe. Are you, is everyone following? All right. If you look historically in this nation and you look at what the Kosa people have done when it comes specifically to education, I mean, just go to the Eastern Cape and you see all these mission schools and that kind of thing. I've got uh, someone I was talking to recently and down in the Eastern Cape, they're starting a tutoring program in schools and so on. But there's just this thing about education. And let's educate people. Let's study, even if you think of Nelson Mandela and all the things he said about education. And I'm not saying if you're not from that tribe, you're not also called to that particular thing. But from a tribal perspective, we can recognize, wait a minute, we've actually got something special that we carry here. If you look at certain nations like the United States of America, one of the main redemptive gifts of the U.S. is giving. Americans are very generous, whether you like them or not. They are generous people. Right? A lot of them are very entrepreneurial, so they've made money and they're now globetrotting around the world giving it away. That's just one of the things they carry. Americans are generous. Okay, One of the redemptive gifts of Nigerians is also generosity, by the way. You know, studies have been done on these particular things. But there are certain people groups that are known for their stinginess. <laughs> Culturally, where it's just like the guys are just tight-fisted, they're stingy. All right? If you look at Switzerland, there's reconciliation, isn't there? Peace. You know, they were known for their neutrality, but also excellence in what they produce. That's why we talk about Swiss, Swiss watches, Swiss chocolate, okay? Do you know that they were mercenaries? They were so good at making weapons and that kind of thing, and they would actually be hired by people to go and slaughter this person, kill this person, go and do this. But when they experienced, when the Swiss experienced reformation, what was so powerful is they said, let's actually put our skills to good use. And they started making the watches, making the clocks, making this, making that, making that. And they became known for those particular things. It's important to understand what the redemptive gifts of people are. If you look at Canada, Canada is known for mercy and refuge, isn't it? Canada is one of those countries when people are thinking of immigrating, they're very welcoming. It's easier to get into Canada than it is to get into the States. So Americans might be very generous, but they might not be strong on mercy and refuge as a nation. Amen? Some nations are known in terms of the amount of missionaries, the number of missionaries that they send out. Ask yourself, how can we embrace the diversity that is present tribally? How can I start appreciating certain things in my friends more than I'm currently appreciating them? Finally, diversity of beliefs. Diversity of beliefs. It's interesting how when you look in scripture, God has got this agenda. He's calling people to himself. But you know what? He creates people. People were scattered throughout the nations, throughout the world. And they ended up having different beliefs, different approaches, different expressions of worship. But you know what's so beautiful? How Paul handles it. If you look at Acts chapter 17, for me... This shows me that your relational maturity is often seen in your ability to embrace diversity, even though you might be challenging the diversity at certain points. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he was distressed by the idolatry, the things that should distress us. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. How good are you at reasoning with people? Apologetics, isn't it? Reasoning with people about the gospel, the people who don't believe what you believe. What I find interesting is he didn't badmouth them. He didn't say later for you guys, you don't believe. What did he do? He reasoned with them. But look at the art he uses in doing so. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic, and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? So sometimes they'll insult you because of your beliefs. But he didn't insult them back, which is important. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this te new teaching is that you are presenting? Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Do you know what he was doing? He was building common ground. He didn't go and start blasting them that, ah, why are you guys worshipping these things? These are idols. He affirmed them. He says, people of Athens, I notice that you guys are very religious. Big ups. You're religious people. Establish common ground. That's one of the first things to do when you're building rapport with another human being. And what I find interesting is he then says, says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he, does, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, from one man, from one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And I know Oprah likes this verse. For in him, she does. So that's what's kept her going. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Can you see that he's preaching the gospel, but he starts off by affirming them. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by, everyone by raising him from the dead. You know, one of the key things in evangelism is being able to transition from an ordinary conversation to delivering the gospel. 
It's a key skill. How do you transition from talking about the weather to preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And as a result of this, some of the people became followers. You know what's interesting for me is how some non-Christians are good at this. Some non-Christians are good at creating platforms where they'll actually hear a Christian perspective. Yet what is interesting for me is a lot of Christians run away from the fact that there are many ideas out there. And because we don't know how to answer them, and we're afraid we might say the wrong thing, we don't embrace the diversity and engage in those difficult conversations. I saw an interesting thing that Ethan Zuckerman, you all know Ethan Zuckerman? Something that he said, he's one of the guys, he's sort of like the original, he's very strong on dot-com and uh, he's the director of the Center for Media at MIT. He's one of the first guys who came out with, you know, uh, those ads, like Facebook ads and those types of things, that whole concept. But he said, if I use Facebook to stay in touch with my high school friends who are church-going Republicans, I may be getting more ideological diversity than hanging out with secular progressives on the world politics subreddit. He's basically saying, I'm connecting with my old high school friends that are Bible-believing Christians. I'm connecting with them so I hear their perspective. Let's ask God to open our eyes in this area of diversity. Let's pray. My prayer for us as a church, my prayer for us as a church is that God would open our eyes so that we see some of the positives in our differences. Let's ask God for those things that will help us to be more aware of the diversity around us. You know that sometimes it's just curiosity. I'm curious to understand, what do you guys believe? How were you guys raised? Sometimes it's empathy. Let me just see things from your mountaintop. What does the world look like from your mountaintop? Sometimes it's authenticity. Let me just be real with you. Sometimes it's just that value of suspending judgment. That before I make a judgment, let me actually think to myself, mm, maybe I would have done the same thing if I had been brought up in the same way. May God help us. Father God, we as your people, we come before you this morning and we choose to respond. We choose to respond to what you're saying to us about embracing diversity. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness where we've been judgmental. We ask for your forgiveness where we've distanced ourselves and we've been afraid of people who are different, different in personality, different in expression of worship in church settings. Lord, may you teach us to be like you. Lord, you called the disciples. They were people from different backgrounds, but you called them all the same. Father, may you help us to embrace diversity as a church that people would look and will say, this is somewhere where I can belong. This is somewhere where I can find friends. This is somewhere where people will understand me once and for all. May you teach us, God, how to present the gospel to people who are not the same as us. I pray, Lord God, that during this series, you would heal our hearts, Lord, where we've been wounded, where we've been wounded by the impact of racism, where we've been wounded by the impact of chauvinism and gender discrimination, where we've been impacted by classism and many other stereotyping that, is, that have taken place. I pray that this will be a time of healing 
for your people. And that, Lord, as we become whole, we take that healing as repairers of the breach into the nations. 